From the home studios of the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT, this is Teach Lab, a podcast about the art and craft of teaching. I'm Justin Reich. Today, Mitchell Stevens, a sociologist of education at Stanford University and someone who I turn to often to think about higher education, the intersection between technology and higher education, and sort of the bigger institutional questions about like why we have universities in the United States and around the world anyway. Um, Mitchell, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Justin. Thanks for having me. So, Mitchell, one question that I feel like you've helped me think about in the past is a deceptively simple one. Like, what is higher education in the United States, and how should we think about what this beast of an ecosystem is? Well, that's a nice small question, Justin. Uh, uh, Some colleagues of mine and I, uh, over the years, have developed a list of uh, metaphors to describe universities. Uh, We call them uh, sieves, incubators, temples, and hubs. Uh, They're sieves in that they they tend to sort and stratify uh, human beings and uh, assign them various places in occupational and other kinds of hierarchies. Uh, So they are sorting systems. Uh, They are incubators in the extent to which they are the places where people make uh, major transitions historically from childhood into adulthood, uh, but also, of course, uh, often uh, transitions from one field of work to another. Um, we and call maybe them... they're more frequently incubators as people change their careers more often? Right, sort of switching stations, ideally, in which um, you know, life or occupational paths um, can be uh, redirected. Um, I direct a graduate program in the School of Education here, and um, a, a lot of people use that one-year program as a as a pivot point, essentially, from 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 one education-related career to another. Um, call them temples because um, if if you have a birth in the university, if if the knowledge that you produce has a birth in the university, uh, then it has a kind of special status that it otherwise wouldn't have. Uh, you know, part of the conversation uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, is is the extent to which knowledge about uh, uh, people who are not white people are adequately represented in the curriculum and faculty of universities. And it's a little legitimate struggle to, to get representation into the temple of knowledge that we call universities. Uh, And then finally, um, the one that I'm most proud of is the idea that universities are hubs. You could sort of think about them as sort of intellectual airports, um, connecting knowledge and personnel from basically every sector of modern societies to every other sector. Um, And how many roads lead into and out of uh, the nation's great universities and how much civil society universities end up offering to the nation by virtue of that uh, that intersectional character. So over the last three, four decades, online learning has been steadily growing and developing. Um, how has it actually intersected with these four functions or how have you hoped it? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So, um, you know, one of the things that's really important about um, American political culture is that 
Americans are very skeptical of, of systems of social provision that are associated with something called welfare. Um, if, uh, if a form of social provision sort of feels like something that the government, uh, capital G, is, is giving away, uh, that makes a lot of Americans uncomfortable. But we really like um, education and we very much like higher education. We don't think of higher education as um, a form of social distribution or social welfare. Uh, we conveniently forget uh, that the federal government hugely underwrites um, officially private universities like Harvard and Stanford. Um, and we, we place a lot of faith in colleges and universities to um, enable opportunity and social mobility. Um, and so uh, what we've seen over the last 40 years is this sort of a steady expansion of um, uh, movement into higher education um, and steady affection, I would say, for you know, people's faith in the promise of higher education to, to change their lives. Um, but at the same time, we've seen colleges and universities receive ever less support from uh, uh, state governments, especially, uh, to support their basic operations. And so um, one of the consequences of that has been a great deal of entrepreneurial activity, um, both in the nonprofit and for-profit sector to dramatically expand educational opportunities, um, college opportunities often digitally mediated, um, you know, sometimes by commercially traded firms, um, sometimes by, uh, you know, officially public state universities like Arizona State. So you've seen a great deal of expansion and entrepreneurial activity in the sector, um, a, a lot of it happening through, through, through digital media. So as you look back, maybe over the last 60 years, there's the GI Bill, we say everybody ought to go to college. And, you know, Americans can get behind that because it doesn't look like social welfare. We have generation after generation, more and more people going to college, more and more people becoming, you know, attached to the idea, more sort of public pressure that really, if you don't go to a four-year college, there's just a whole lot of opportunities that aren't available to you. Mm -hmm. But then sometime... 20, 30, like in the middle of that, sometimes 20, 30 years ago, we have these new campaigns of state level austerity. We say yeah. we're taxing people too much. We're spending too much money. Yeah. And so even though in our hearts, we love our state universities, we're just going to give them less money. Um, and so we reach this kind of inflection point where everyone feels like they're supposed to go to college, but states are withdrawing the amount of funding that allows people to go to college inexpensively. Um, and so the, you know, the thing that fills the void um, are for-profit or other entrepreneurial looking opportunities of which online learning is like one powerful vanguard for doing that. And it's a powerful vanguard because people think it'll be cheap and easy to distribute or like what, what makes online learning sort of a good fit for that social problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned the GI Bill. Um, you know, the higher education system that you and I inherit is really a project of um, 20th century Warcraft. It was uh, mobilization for World War II, the rewarding of veterans upon uh, war's conclusion uh, with the Civil Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, the National Defense Education Act of 1958, um, which happened in the wake of the launch of Sputnik, and the Higher Education Act of 1965, which was a broad 
inclusion project um, that came in the wake of the civil rights uh, and black power movements to respond to uh, educational opportunity at a pivotal moment in uh, higher education and, and national history. Uh, but since that time, uh, you know, Americans have grown increasingly skeptical that their tax dollars are being spent responsible by state legislatures, especially, and they have, you know, pulled back on their investment um, in public goods like higher education. Just like you said, at the same time, they very much want higher education for themselves and their for, and their children. Uh, and so, you know, filling the gap of of public provision, especially at the state level have been a wide variety of, of, of firms, uh, many of them for-profit firms, um, offering uh, more affordable and more accessible higher education. Why the web? Uh, two big reasons. Uh, one, uh, uh, as you write about well um, in your book, um, if you do it badly, online learning is cheap. Um, so, uh, you know, digital mediation, you know, uh, uh, done minimally, um, is, is very cost efficient on a per unit basis. Um, uh, the, the other reason is that, um, digital media meet people where they are. So, uh, especially to the extent that people are wanting to fit higher education into complicated work and family lives. Um, you know, the fact that I can attend college without physically going to a campus is a huge advantage and opportunity. So um, while we know a lot of the entrepreneurial activity with online provision um, has not been of high quality, uh, there certainly has been a lot of it. Um, and the sheer scale uh, of online delivery uh, certainly creates conditions for uh, creative innovation and, and, and perhaps even some science um, if we pursue the project responsibly. Um, how, how do you think it affects the temple um, you know, like it, like if the temple has, if the temple of higher education has been historically a physical place, um, yeah. like, can we build temples on the web or, um, why don't we talk about t a temple and incubator simultaneously? Perfect. You know, something that we haven't yet mentioned is while there's been a great deal of, um, organizational and technological innovation around online learning throughout the post-secondary sector, it's the historically most admission-selective, most well-resourced, and most expensive universities that have been most defensive and skeptical about online learning. It was and Harvard, MIT, Stanford. Harvard, MIT, we don't want any of this stuff. Right, exactly, exactly. It's for community um, colleges. It's for the for-profit Exactly, colleges. exactly. Um, and they have held steadfast to the, to the notion that... Um, you know, face-to-face -face residential instruction is the sine qua non of, of academic excellence. Uh, and, you know, that, um, that boundary work, as sociologists call it, has been very effective in uh, preserving the mystique of, of the temple and the mystique of uh, the promise that something special happens on the physical campuses of the nation's most expensive universities. We, we, could, we couldn't possibly offer an online degree because what happens at MIT is irreplaceable to be at MIT. Exactly, and we can't really explain to you why we can't convey it online because it's so mysterious and complicated um, that you really have to be you know, in the temple to understand you know, how the magic works. So. Um, the sort of the resistance to online instruction has been a way of, shall we say, um, 
sustaining the mystique of 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 campus instruction, uh, which frankly, you know, basically serves the status interests of the institutions that have, uh, you know, resisted online learning. So then a pandemic strikes and nobody is allowed to be on campus anymore, but universities can't just pause their operations or, I mean, it's actually like, I mean, my sense is the the most expensive elites have mostly, you know, the people the people with invulnerable reputations and admissions have said, we're for the most part going to lot let people on campus because it's unsafe. We're going to do online learning instead. Um, mm-hmm. And then flagship state institutions have said, we desperately need this revenue. And so we're going to do some effort at mm-hmm. on-person learning or on-campus learning. Like mm-hmm. how, how does how does the pandemic sort of change the calculation around the mystique? What's going to happen when Harvard undergraduates have a successful year online at Harvard? uh, This is what has been so um, uh, spectacular to watch as a student of higher education is that um, the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, through those uh, ongoing promises about the value of uh, face-to-face instruction, into a moment of profound ambiguity. Um, on the one hand, um, you know, if face-to-face instruction was as essential to the quality of delivery as getting a haircut, um, then there would have been no way for Stanford and Harvard to continue to deliver their product uh, uh, because the or, or their service because the service itself would have been fundamentally dependent upon face-to-face instruction. To my knowledge, no college or university in the country um, decided that its instruction was like a haircut. Um, it, it, it moved forward with instruction um, and thus you know, created these conditions under which um, institutional leaders had to simultaneously say um, that uh, um, online instruction could be functionally equivalent to face-to-face instruction um, uh, at the same time that their, you know, entire academic project uh, until um, March 15, the middle of March, had been predicated on um, making precisely the opposite claim. Um, so places like the Harvard Graduate School of Education, I don't know if Stanford did something similar, decided that this year they're going to have a one-year fully online degree. You know, they had said mm-hmm. for however long, like, well, we couldn't possibly do the Harvard Graduate School of Education online. Oh, but now actually we can. Um where do you think they're going to find themselves, you know, in May of this year? Do you anticipate that they'll, or post, post vaccine, post a better future? Um, do they, how, how do, do they just sort of go back to the status quo anti pandemic or? Well, 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 your, your example, I think is, is, is quite poignant because um, it, it reminds us that, you know, even some of the, um, uh, wealthiest uh, and most sort of financially secure institutions uh, in the country still kind of constitutionally rely on uh, tuition-paying students to maintain their basic operations. And so uh, just in a, in a sheer financial sense, uh, suspending operations until face-to-face instruction is possible again is 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 existentially unfeasible for um, 
for hundreds everybody has to get fired they all yes. have you can't rehire right. these people because of the way that they're right i mean right. Even, even the support staff and stuff like that you know like right especially you especially can't be the first one to do it if a lot of other people aren't because the the best people will get absorbed by the system and then you're you're not your institution mm -hmm. anymore exactly and so um I do think this this provides a, a a moment of true uncertainty about the future um, because essentially every college and university overnight had to reconceive what quality instruction would look and feel like at their institutions. Um, uh, it, 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 it creates an openness to forward change that I honestly believe we, we cannot Fully predict. Um, it will depend, for example, um, on on how uh, how American students and and those who pay tuition sort of feel about the value proposition of what they've experienced, um, uh, and and the extent to which uh, the utilities and advantages that they experience online are sufficiently satisfying that they're that they're willing to continue a conversation about online or. Or hybrid delivery. I do believe this is a context in which uh, how students and their families respond to these new environments will be definitive um, in in how the 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 fate of the sector unfolds. So here's here's one of the things that surprised me the most, and I would love to get your take on it. So over the last two decades, edtech evangelists have said like we are constantly on the cusp of a whole new generation of education technology tools. We're gonna to have adaptive tutors. We're gonna have massive open online courses. We're gonna have, uh, we're, we're gonna have peer network learning communities. We're gonna have all of these different kinds of ways for people to learn. And they are gonna sort of force these systems to change, to reconfigure unbundled jobs. Um, and they're gonna be better than the existing higher education system in January of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, the pandemic strikes, the, one of the only options that educators have um, is to like leave their lecterns, go to their home webcams and sort of jury rig together reasonably bad versions. I mean, of varying quality, but for many people like pretty bad versions of what they were doing before. And just about everyone in higher education chooses that over any of the new options that are available. Like I hear very few places that said, oh, we've got to turn, you know, I can't possibly create um, a really good second half of an introductory microeconomics class from my living room with my kids at home in the midst of a pandemic. I'm just going to point people to Coursera or edX because they've built like half a dozen introductory microeconomics classes that cost $150,000 each to make. Um, I, I mean, all of those places saw sort of surges in enrollment, but I didn't see anywhere in higher education where people said, oh, this is really the moment to do things really differently. I mean, what I saw was people saying, this is the moment to do things as exactly as the same as possible as we've been doing them before, and which technologies will allow us to do that most easily. And it's basically, you know, video conferencing and learning management systems, mm -hmm. two of the sort of oldest technologies we have. Does that, does that read sound right to you? And if so, uh, kind of why? So here's it. Uh, I, I think the question is is uh, is is quite powerful. So, um, and I've been thinking about this myself. Um, you know, for years, um, educational futurists have been telling us about the you know the imminent transformation of post secondary delivery, and it hasn't arrived. 
And, you know, the jury is still out on, uh, you know, what happens in the wake of pandemic. Um, but I think one thing that the, that the futurists and innovation advocates neglect to see is that uh, fiscal austerity, especially at the state level aside, uh, the United States federal government pumps 120 billion U.S. dollars per year into the higher education sector uh, through the provisions of Title IV of the Higher Education Act of 1965. Um, they, con- they come uh, largely in the form of Pell Grants and, uh, uh, and works, federal work study. Um, and then, you know, additional uh, billions of dollars are provided by uh, federally subsidized loans. There's been no incentive change at the federal level for colleges and universities to change their delivery formats, their business models, their price points. In fact, precisely the opposite. So the CARES Act that Congress passed uh, in the spring in the wake of COVID uh, extended 14 billion US dollars in direct aid to colleges and universities. That aid was tied to full-time equivalent enrollment. In other words, uh, schools were rewarded um, if they thought in terms of full-time campus-based students as their bread and butter. Uh, The institutions that had been most flexible and entrepreneurial in reaching more students at broader price points on a part-time basis were entirely excluded from the CARES Act. So um, I think one of the things that reformers and educators need to think about now is how the how federal funding of higher education needs to be part of the incentive structure that will encourage uh, universities to truly innovate, um, in, not only in how they convey education, but to whom and at what price point. So, so a person like me who looks at educational systems and generally looks at them through the lens of like, well, what's a teacher doing and what's a group of students doing and what are those sort of individual actors thinking? I'm sort of drawn to this story of, um, well, it turns out that like students really like traditional instruction and there's no, you know, there's no hue and cry for something different to happen. There was not, you know, there weren't like student strikes across the country being like, please, for the love of God, let us out of these crappy Zoom classes and let us just take MOOCs to pass. Like what you're teaching us is terrible. In fact, by contrast, I was, you know, I was really struck by surveys and things like that that said that students really wanted synchronous instruction with their professors, despite the fact that they're at home in their closets doing this. Um, And, you know, my general assumption is that teachers are busy. And so in the midst of a pandemic, they say, let's just kind of do whatever it is that we were doing before, because that's what I know how to do. But you offer this perspective that says another thing shaping all of those individual micro level decisions is the fact that the federal government said, if you all want to keep cranking along here, you're not allowed to try sort of alternate reconfigurations of higher education. You got to keep these full-timers cranking away. I guess what I would suggest is that um, uh, current federal government funding for higher education in no way encourages educational providers to innovate on delivery or price. And you're a scientist, no incentive to systematically measure and observe what they do. uh, one of the great tragedies of, of this moment, uh, on my view, is that because uh, federal reporting standards for post-secondary delivery are so lax, it's going to be very hard for researchers or policymakers to know 
which of these experiments that are playing out across the whole landscape of higher education have been effective and which have been less effective for which kinds of learners in what parts of the country. Um, you know, we, we live in a country without uh, what's called a student unit record system. There's a great deal of uncertainty about um, how students move through the time and place of college uh, because we just haven't built a national infrastructure for observing um, instructional uh, or educational journeys very well. Um, that's the sort of, that's the site where I think, um, you know, ambitious uh, uh, federal financing uh, in the wake of a national emergency, you know, might really help change the landscape for um, how teaching and learning are observed and understood. And you and, and just to sort of infer from your view there, so you're, the, the claim is that there's, there's no way there's no way at an institution to measure learning that we've implemented. Um, there's no way even really to like get good data at scale about progress. Um, and so we could think of a bunch of reasons why that might be bad in higher education generally. Like you don't no, know whether or not that's this actually not that's okay. actually not what I said. Okay. I didn't say there's no way to measure learning. I'm saying there's there have been very few incentives or expectations that colleges and universities. Okay must measure learning or must measure academic progress or must ob observe variation in how students experience their offerings. Yeah, they're not, there's not no way in the sense that like they can't do it. It's that there's no incentive for them to do it. There's no mandate for them to do it. So universities Correct. are not measuring learning. They're not measuring progress. And so there's, there's gonna, it's going to be very difficult for us to tell you know, in a year or in 15 years um, whether or not anything that anyone tried worked. Um, what do you do you have a do you have a story in mind of how the imposition you know the like requirements around learning measures or or other kinds of assessments or things along those lines would sort of mm -hmm. open up productive pathways for innovation and change? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, for, first, I'll say. I mean, there's 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 a reason why the United States has not you know built this observational infrastructure, um, and that's because um, you know op op opacity. Uh, protects providers. Um, it's uh, anyone who has, uh, you know, bought a bought a used car in this country at present can easily know more about the 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 uh, track record um, and and basic quality of the vehicle she is buying than she can possibly know about uh, a college or university. Um, and that's because in the used car market, Americans have uh, created a, an informational regime that makes it very hard for people to um, um, avoid providing systematic information about the product that they're selling. Um, and we take it for granted that it's a consumer's right to know basic things about the, a car that they buy, um, or a product that they may purchase uh, from a manufacturer in the grocery store. Um, um, uh, we haven't ever done the same thing for colleges and universities. Um, and that's given colleges and universities a great deal of freedom uh, to make promises um, and court audiences with you know, very little um, systematic information um, on which uh, potential uh, students could rely. So it's 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 great for the providers, but it's um, it's very risky for educational consumers. And I would imagine, you know, that 
there's a tension that we could find here between sort of like pedagogical progressives who are like, oh, come on, our assessment systems are not that good. Look at K-12. We're bad at measuring these things. And when you measure them, you create all kinds of terrible incentives. So isn't it a good thing that we've managed to avoid all this? And mm-hmm. folks that are like trying to regulate the for-profit educational sector where, you know, organizations are allowed to, and, and maybe elite colleges too, organizations are allowed to make promises that are like, come here and X percentage of our people go on to get jobs in this field. Um, and, you know, there's, there's sort of no way to verify or make sense of those kinds of claims, which I also think people who would are pedagogical progressives would be like, well, yeah, yeah, I don't want, you know, um, for-profit colleges claiming that uh, 89% of their radiology tech graduates get radiology jobs um, when in fact, you know, 70% of them become orderlies or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but though, like, is, is one problem here that the, like, there are sort of multiple stakeholders you know, maybe with very different political projects that want to block measurement and learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say you know, um, uh, as 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 you uh, and and colleagues like uh, Andrew Ho at Harvard and Wendy Espeland at Northwestern and others have talked about, um, you know, uh, uh, measurement itself is 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 not politically benign, and it can uh, uh, measure. M- Poor measurement can create perverse incentives that um, uh, encourage providers and and uh, learners alike to to optimize uh, on dimensions that um, you know may or not may or may not be the, the optimal ones. Um, uh, at the same time, um, my sense is that um, the imperative to at least document and observe educational processes is not going to go backward. Um, for better or worse, an accountability revolution transformed K-12 through 12 education in this country in the last 25 years. Um, I will not say that that accountability revolution made K-12 education better or more humane, um, uh, but it did reorganize how, um, how public education works in this country. I personally think that um, higher, you know, the, the 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 more systematic measurement of higher education is similarly unavoidable. The question is, um, who will be responsible for the measures, um, and on what terms will measurement occur, um, and who will pay for that measurement? Um, one of the things that I think you and your colleagues at MIT can be quite proud of um, is that um, I I. I, I look at MIT, a few schools like MIT and the University of Michigan um, and see institutions that recognize um, that it's in their best interests educationally as well as scientifically um, to instrument and observe their own instructional projects um, and do this right on their own terms. Um, I, I, I truly think that, um, that uh, 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 forward-thinking uh, colleges and universities across the country would be well served uh, to take that model um, and embrace the responsibility uh, uh, to measure and observe their educational processes um, with an eye toward improvement. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. In, my, in my more optimistic days, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that more schools will follow that lead. Um, but I also know that, um, that federal funding is a very powerful mechanism for um, 
uh, encouraging colleges and universities to do new things in new ways. This $120, um, $120 billion spigot that was sort of opened after World War II as a work yeah, time it effort, it's not going to stay open forever. Um, you know, either, either we're going to measure ourselves or people that maybe we don't like are going to come up with these measurements for us. Right. And I, and I truly believe that it's an, you know, it's an opportunity for, uh, for, for, again, forward thinking universities to um, put them, you know, present themselves as, as um, servants in the national interest um, to assist, you know, perhaps a, a new presidential administration in devising uh, educational relief efforts that might um, do two things at once might, again, encourage new forms of po post-secondary delivery at a variety of price points and a variety of formats for a wider range of, of men and women, um, but that might also create conditions under which um, educational researchers um, uh, could systematically observe and understand what works and what doesn't for whom. That's like race to the top for higher ed in 2020. Could, could, could be worse on my view. <laughs> All right, Mitchell, I've got to ask you about one more thing, um, which is, I think it came out of your doctoral dissertation that you studied homeschool communities. Um, I did. So we have to pivot to K-12 for at least a few minutes to ask you, um, I, you know, I think the United States has become interested in homeschooling like it never has before, as it was, you know, it was, it was forcibly opposed upon millions and millions of families. Um, and now those who are forcibly imposed into homeschooling are looking around and being like, what are the people who voluntarily did this? What, like, what are they doing and how do they make it work? Um, is there is there anything from your homeschool research that sort of jumped out at you as you've watched, uh, you know, Americans try to deal with schooling in a pandemic? Absolutely. That's a very prescient uh, inquiry, I would suggest, for a very prescient group of, of, of uh, men and women. Um, homeschoolers really were uh, intellectual and pedagogical pioneers. Their, uh, their, uh, their claim as early as the 1970s was that uh, bureaucratic forms of educational delivery uh, were not just suboptimal, they were bad for children. Um, their argument was that, you know, obliging students to, to learn in regimented ways in age-graded classrooms was, was, was deeply problematic pedagogically uh, for many children. Again, across um, a kind of political spectrum. Like across the political if, if, spectrum. You know, fun, Christian evangelists think this is a problem because the state is going to teach their children things that are, you know, not aligned with revealed wisdom. And pedagogical progressives are going to be uh, offended because they're, you know, these regimented systems don't recognize like the unique geniuses and freedoms of our particular children. So there's like a whole bunch of people who might disagree about a bunch of things, but agree about this. Exactly. Um, and the other thing to remember is that it, it's it's a fairly short step intellectually from um, the so-called unschooling rhetoric of the 1970s to the individualized assessment educational plans that are now um, virtually taken for granted as um, you know best in class service in K through 12 classrooms. So and often know, the, mediated by education technology as kind exactly. of the next step. You go from unschooling to IEPs to personalized right. learning. Right. It's all it's all the same line of of of, of a presumption that individualized instruction is sort of always better. Um, the big hook there, of course, is that individualized instruction is very costly. 
um, so costly in terms of um, human investment that um, homeschool parents, almost always women, um, forego full-time work entirely so they can provide the individualized instruction that they presume that their children need and deserve. Um, uh, overnight, uh, you know, all of us became homeschoolers. Um, and uh, I think there are sort of two big takeaways for that, or two big lessons from that. You know, uh, you know w one is the extent to which basically the entirety of our society is predicated on um, uh, children being in school so that parents can work. Um, uh, and the fact that um, we live in a world in which um, all adults are obliged to work outside the home more or less full time um, in order to sustain the livelihoods of their families um, suggests so just kind of how thin uh, the social safety net is in this country, um, uh, you know, in the absence of, of, of public schooling. Well, one connection that I see between these two things is mm -hmm. sort of like, between higher education, we were just talking about with homeschoolers, mm -hmm. is there are beliefs that get developed um, in the 1950s and 1960s that are like unsustained in the present moment. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, that you need to go to college, but we're actually not going to pay for it. Um, mm -hmm. That, you know, there needs to be the sort of devoted individual attention to the rearing of children provided mostly by women. But actually, mm -hmm. we need you all to go to work now. Right. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's like our, our social institutions are, you know, kind of like evolving at a different rate. Or, you know, I don't know, our social organizational units are evolving at a different rate than our beliefs. Um, and so we get these mismatches. Yeah, I, I, um, I think that's right. And the um, I think one of the, something else that ties these two together, I would say, um, is that, uh, and we haven't talked about explicitly yet, is, is that, um, you, you know, we talk historically about a dichotomy between home and school or families and providers, um, but there's a very large third sector now, and they're, let's call them um, uh, learning platforms, or, uh, for want of a better term, or educational businesses. Um, those learning platforms are both at school and in our homes. They are neither um, fully public nor, nor fully private. They are not, uh, they are educational services, but they are also businesses. Um, uh, and so the let's say the, the learning ecosystem is much more complicated um, than most of our cultural understandings, which tend to dichotomize being in school or being at home or being at school and being at work. Um, uh, you know, as people are accumulating learning experiences, they're now interacting with a wide variety um, of business organizations. You know, what am I doing when I go on YouTube to learn how to recock my bathtub? right? Is that a learning experience? Is that a business experience? Is that like going to the library? Um, you know, what is my relationship between YouTube? <laughs> right? what, what's even weirder um, is when my, my home ec teacher assigns me as a, as an, as a student right. compelled to be in public schools, right. to go to YouTube, to watch a video about cocking my tub, you know, either on a device mm -hmm. that the, that the school purchased or on a device that I own myself. And then I go start messing around my bathtub mm -hmm. and my parents yell at me and things like that. Yeah. There's no, mm -hmm. um, 
that 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 bridge between homeness and schoolness and public and private i mean there's always like little antecedents of that you know we had textbooks mm -hmm. that were made by publishers that we carried back and forth between right. home and school but they didn't sort of you know infiltrate our lives in the same way right. our learning platforms and, do. and i think that's one of the you know uh, you know that's one of the ways in which um also our our policy discourse about um who's responsible for education who should pay and who should pay for it and what an instruct an educational relation looks like, what makes it different from a commercial transaction, um, those questions are much more complicated than they were 25 years ago. And it's my sense that not only our cultural understandings of education, but our academic understandings of education, right? How we theorize learning processes, how we consider what appropriate regulations are, how we think about um, the proper ethical relationships between different kinds of educational providers. Um, uh, you know, the, the current multi-platform uh, environment of teaching and learning um, has much, has quickly gotten far more complicated than our ability to, um, uh, to be systematically thoughtful about it. Um, and that's daunting, but it's also a great intellectual challenge. Um, do you have, so it sounds like one, sort of takeaway from that is we need more people thinking and theorizing that, you know, not just at the level of, you know, like does, you know, do adaptive tutors make, uh, you know, learning faster or not, but at the level of like, what is happening to our laws, our regulations, our society, like our, like what kind of theory and language we have to describe things. Um, do you have anything else sort of in the current moment that, um, I, that that's, a, that's a good, um, uh, uh, the industrialization uh, that uh, culminated at the end of the 19th century is the, is the macro historical process that brought us the 20th century social sciences. Um, and so I, you know, uh, if the digital revolution is as profound um, as we are often being told that it is, then we should fully expect um, uh, essentially a, a re-theorization of um, you know, uh, basic uh, features of, of human organization um, and ethical behavior um, like those that accompanied um, the last industrial revolution. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do. Let's get at it. Let's do it. Well, Mitchell Stevens from Stanford University, thanks so much for helping us think through all of these uh, complex issues and these new ways of imagining futures. Thank you. See ya. That was Mitchell Stevens. He's a sociologist and professor of education and organizational behavior and sociology at Stanford University, the author of several books, including Creating Class and Seeing the World, How U.S. Universities Make Knowledge in a Global Era. In conversations with Mitchell, I always feel like I'm inspired to look up from the classroom processes, the teaching and learning that I am most naturally drawn to, and to think about how these institutions sit in broader uh, social context and broader political economy. And then I think the project that Mitchell asks us to take seriously is do we even have the right language for describing what's in front of us given all of the changes that are happening um, through digital learning in our societies? Um, and that I always find to be a productive provocation. So I'm grateful to Mitchell for coming in and talking with us at Teach Lab. I'm Justin Reich. Thanks for listening to Teach Lab. Please subscribe to get future episodes on how educators from all walks of life 
are tackling distance learning during COVID-19. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast provider. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute and leave a review. I've also just released a new book that Mitchell referenced briefly, Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education, available from booksellers everywhere. You can read reviews, related media, and sign up for online events at failuretodisrupt.com. That's failuretodisrupt.com. This episode of Teach Lab was produced by Amy Corrigan and Garrett Beasley, recorded and sound mixed by Garrett Beasley. Stay safe until next time.